This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Cassie McCullough and welcome back to the second half of our special presentation of Geoffrey Robertson's hypothetical All at Sea. Set on an ocean cruise, in the hour ahead, the passengers and crew are confronted with the unfolding events on the mythical island of Amnesia. And you can find the full details of who's on board at abc.net.au slash summer. So to catch up with where we're at, it's the near future and the oceans are rising, islands are sinking and political fortunes are shifting. How will the passengers and crew navigate the complicated questions ahead? Here's Geoffrey Robertson. It's a very fractious time at the moment. The American presidential election has been held and President Trump is back again. He changes the policy towards the Pacific. He says, look, these Pacific islands are losers. They're goners. They're sliding under the ocean. I've got a brilliant idea. That seat that Tuvalu has or had at the United Nations, we will give to Taiwan. We will insist that the General Assembly give Tuvalu's seat to Taiwan. What's that going to do, Dr. Raby, to China? Oh, I think uh, they might be a little bit upset. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Trump, if that's a scenario, I don't think has the uh, opportunity to do that. Uh, and I think uh, 129 or whatever countries uh, recognise uh, the People's Republic of China. And I think it would be very hard to move all those votes in the United well, Nations. What Trump is saying has a certain sense. He says Taiwan has 25 million people. It's a democracy. It deserves to be independent. It's no different from Australia. This is absolutely correct. There's no historical validity going back to 1949 to China's obsessive claim for a one-China policy. Except for the fact that uh, most states in the world have recognised a one-China that is the difference. Well, and they have problem? explicitly and consciously recognised the one China. Mm. So that's the situation that needs to be addressed. Well, what Trump says is, look, we got away with it with Pelosi's visit years ago. We called their bluff. Is he really just a bull in a China shop, quite literally? Uh, yep, I think that's right. And uh, try it and see what happens. But Australia <laughs> that's, that's is, the risk. You know, Australia is a risk calculation hip, for you, isn't it, to mm. American policy uh, when um, it comes to foreign policy? I'm glad you said that because that's directly out of my book. You're asked to advise Senator Birmingham, who uh, you've become the foreign minister. Of course, Scott I'm, I'm Morris. Still on the cruise ship? No, you've flown oh, back to Canberra. You got avoided being photographed in your Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> you Next to Wendy's tattoos. got a VIP flight back to Canberra because you're now the foreign minister. Scott Morrison was, of course, the first, Mr Dutton's first choice, but he resigned to head the Hillsong Church. So 
It's now, you're now the foreign minister, and you have to decide whether Australia should go along with America and support its resolution in the General Assembly to seat Taiwan. Well, I'm a little distracted at present because uh, I am, in fact, travelling very quickly to meet with Ralph to express my concerns about the cannery, which, based on all of our intelligence, there hasn't been a fish caught by these so-called fishing (laughs) vessels ever. They don't have many nets. And that the cannery doesn't look like it's going to be making too many cans It's okay. I have photos of him. I can help. (laughs) But But what about the problem of whether Australia will support America in this quite enormously provocative action of trying to give Tuvalu's seat to Taiwan. Whilst en route to uh, to see Ralph, I would be calling uh, my Japanese, European and other uh, counterparts across democracies and uh, seeking their counsel and thoughts, but I think seeking also to build a very strong coalition to urge some caution, uh, given we have this potential crisis situation of a very dangerous so-called cannery on our shores. Well, you have 14 sovereign states, now 13, with votes at the United Nations. How's Amnesia going to vote? Kiribati, Solomon Islands are all going to vote against America. Well, the Pacific Island Forum has taken a stand, Mm. which is that if the US wants to take this move, then by this stage, the struggle of the Chamorro, who are the indigenous people of Guam, has progressed quite far, and they're seeking independence from the US. Mm. And so the Kanakamoli also, the indigenous people of Hawaii, mm-hmm. they're seeking independence from the US. And so the Pacific Islands Forum is saying, you can have it, but you've got to give independence to these territories. Right. A long struggle for decolonization, which is finally reaching the final stages. So you will support Taiwan being seated at the United Nations as an independent country, which will outrage China if you get two more seats. If Guam and Hawaii are given their independence. Right. How's Australia going to reply to that? It's getting very complicated, and this is, uh, this is clearly why the pathway of seeking to urge some caution was, uh, was the right one initially. And uh, given I'm en route to see Ralph about the cannery whilst calling the other democratic nations of the world to urge caution, I think I, uh, I would be equally suggesting that uh, uh, whilst this momentum may be there that Ralph speaks of, uh, that it would be counterproductive to completely uh, break down the existing mm. order of nations. Well, uh, Australia is relied upon in these islands to come up with information to understand what's going on. Jeff Raby, how does Australian diplomats, how do they collect information? There's some really excellent bars across the Pacific, <laughs> and uh, they're very well inhabited by Australian diplomats. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I mean, there's, there's, there's many, many ways. Uh, well, the simplest uh, way electronically is and personally. And, uh, simplest way is to pay the cabinet secretary what he wants, $25,000, into his Cook Island bank account, which he doesn't pay tax on, and uh, just get the cabinet minutes. Well, you don't have to pay. You just listen electronically. <laughs> So you won't, you won't bribe. We're above that. <laughs> You're above bribing. Well, there, that's good to know. There is another way. The Chinese foreign minister 
Mr. Gung Ho, <laughs> is coming to amnesia next week to speak to the Prime Minister, in secret, of course. And there is a way for Australia, if it won't bribe, to find out. These islands and Australia have a new head of state, King Charles III. And the problem for which AusAid is going to solve is that in all parliaments, in cabinet rooms, in departments of government, there is a picture of the old queen. And it has to be replaced. And an AusAid team is going round the islands, replacing it with the official picture of the new king, Charles III. It will be in the amnesian parliament tomorrow, and it will be erecting a picture of the new king, behind which an ASIO operative, who's been sent specially, could put a bugging device <laughs> so that we would have a transcript of everything said by the foreign minister to Mr. Reagan-Banu and of Mr. Reagan-Banu's reply. What do you think of that? We've done this before, haven't we? You're oblivious, of course, Ralph Reagan-Banu, but you're very happy to welcome the Chinese foreign minister, Gung Ho. You have a military parade because he's supplied your forces with all the weapons. Colonel Sam Booker, who is the head of your army, welcomes him, turns up in full. You're a bit suspicious of him. You suspect he's got political ambitions, but you go to the cabinet room with the new picture of the king and queen, and he says how delighted he is to be here, how he's agreed that your troops will have special firearms training, and Chinese will start work very soon on the stadium. He says, uh, what are you your nation think of doing about this provocative American motion at the General Assembly? I tell him that um, we will vote against it. Mm -hmm. And I will take that view to my colleagues in the Pacific Islands Forum. Mm -hmm. Well, Kiribati and Solomons have already decided to vote against the American provocation. Would you bother to consult Australia? Well, I will assure the Chinese foreign minister first, and then when he leaves, then I might talk to Australia, see what they have to say about it. Mm. Well, give Simon Birmingham a call. You met him on the boat. So I ring him and I ask him, mm. um, well, China's said this, what have you got to offer? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Prime Minister, uh, we, uh, we would urge you to be mindful that, uh, that um, the position taken on these motions could very much destabilise the region and the world. Uh, and that you should act carefully, uh, that you should uh, act carefully in concert with uh, a range of other nations who share um, principles around democracy and freedom and uh, that we have been trying to work carefully to listen to your concerns and that we hope that you will work with us on this occasion. There you are. But Gung Ho said to you just before he left, 
we're having problems, as you know. We're getting a lot of tuna, but we can't get them canned in time. We have to take them back to China to can them. We'd like to purchase that unused island of yours, Bali High, for our cannery for tuna. Would you be interested? I definitely would be interested. We won't use it for military purposes, of course. Yes. We'll allow Colonel Sam Booker to inspect it every six months, so you'll be happy that there's no missiles or anything. I would assure the minister that we are interested, and uh, let's talk about it. Geoffrey, we, we've got this information from behind the portrait. You send it back to Canberra? The CIA will be very interested and very grateful. The issue is, does uh, a position in amnesia give um, uh, a potential enemy, if that enemy is China, a greater strategic advantage than they have now? And if people look at the map, Hainan Island, mm. which is the Chinese submarine base, is very, very close to northern Australia. Mm. So, and they've got their own port in Darwin. So maybe we're a little oversensitive. Nonetheless, Senator Birmingham, the Prime Minister, is worried about the fractionalism, as he calls it, in the Pacific Island Forum. These countries are not supporting America as we are. They're fighting over issues that they can't agree upon. So he goes and talks to the Governor-General, Sir Anthony Abbott, who says, <laughs> I've got the answer. A royal tour. Let the head of state, the new head of state of the Pacific Islands go and they'll remember the advantages of colonialism. All that we gave you, the rule of law, parliament, democracy, Christianity, rugby league, all came from the British colonialists. What don't you think, Imelda, that this is a royal tour, might be a way of reminding the islands just what they got from Britain? I think it's a good opportunity to remind Britain what they got from the Pacific. <laughs> what? Because slavery is real. And oh, that's well, what occurred. Of course, you've got smallpox and syphilis and slavery. Sure. But building nations mm. were by Pacific Island people in this region. But it's interesting when the royals go on tour in the Caribbean, they get requests, and some of the courts have granted, for reparations for slavery. Like I said, amnesia is real in this country, yeah. and they don't want to address the issues. Well, you could take, if you built that law school, you might have lawyers who could take Britain to court for reparations for what was that slavery where they came and Black kidnapped? Birding. Blackbirding. Mm. 
in the 1890s, that was... 1847. Yes, it was British colonial rule. Started with the 1790s here in Sydney. You could launch an action for reparations. You could launch an action mm. for reparations, but the thing is, the powers that be won't allow for that. Mm. You know? Well, it, you could... The influences are real in terms of the oppression of a people's voice in this country. Well, I mean, we're dealing with that with First Nations people. King Charles directly... Sina. He's a, you're a member of Greenpeace. He's very green. He talks to the trees. He says they listen to him. I'd like to think they do. But, you know, I also share the same sentiments as my sister Imelda. Mm -hmm. Colonialism has had a very dark history in the Pacific. And to be quite frank, I don't think I'd be as welcoming mm. as uh, perhaps other members on who are seated around this table. We share a very dark history when mm. it comes to the royal family mm. and what they've taken from my ancestors, our ancestors. So it definitely would be a process. Um, it's definitely something that would require a lot of dialogue. And I think that it might also be an opportunity for healing. So if they're coming to apologize, well, like I definitely welcome that first, before anything else. On Radio National Summer, this is Geoffrey Robertson's hypothetical All at Sea. We're in the near future and climate change is front of mind as islands of the Pacific disappear under the rising oceans. But will this change Australia's approach to mining of fossil fuels and supplying energy to the world? Here's Geoffrey Robertson. There are other decisions, Mr Prime Minister, that you have to make. And there are decisions, Mr Birmingham, that you have to make. In particular, the problem of more licences for coal. And the reason is that Australian coal is enormously sought after in Europe because the war in Ukraine is still going on. People are freezing to death in German winters because they can't get Russian gas. And the Prime Minister says to you, you know, Simon, I've always been a humanitarian. I'm horrified at the thought of these Germans freezing to death when they could have good old Australian coal. Coal for humanity is what I say. Well, I think, uh, I think if we are facing the humanitarian crisis and if this is the immediate short-term solution, then the likelihood is they're going to source their coal from somewhere mm. around the world. But I would also be seeking to get some commitments that we get their support in terms of the investment in our hydrogen industries and other clean economies that can help to ensure our position is not compromised when it comes uh, to the longer-term task of, uh, of emissions reduction. But this is uh, a wicked challenge. The war in Ukraine, the outbreak of that conflict, the reliance on fossil fuels has meant that other countries, of course, have not been able to come close to meeting the targets and commitments they've met. Would you criticise Australia for granting all these coal licences? You know, they've got to source it from somewhere. And mm -hmm. if uh, Australian coal burns a bit cleaner than, you know, uh, Indonesian coal, for example, mm. then uh, perhaps that's a lesser of two And Australia doesn't actually do the emitting. Yeah. I mean, we just dig the coal. 
and sent it overseas, it's the Germans who do the omitting. Do you see that argument, Thomas Mayer? No, because we've got an obligation to, to think, you know, broader than just what happens here. Mm. Um, I mean, it's our coal and, um, and we've got a responsibility. Mm -hmm. A responsibility to stop it. You would advise the Maritime Union to stop the ships that are taking the coal to Germany? The Union has done this sort of thing before where it it's has. important enough, absolutely. You know, yes. if it's about people's lives, if it's about justice. In the um, 30s, yeah. it stopped ships that Mr Menzies was sending to arm Japan. Pig Iron Bob, yeah. Mm. But the people of Germany have a, a, a right to be warm during winter as well. And we have to find sources of uh, energy during the emergency to uh, uh, replace the gas that's been denied them by a criminal regime in Russia. So I think there's a moral obligation that we keep people warm who have been denied gas by a criminal regime. Maybe it's moral to supply that coal, but is it, is it moral for, for Australia to profit from that deal? Because the companies are making enormous profits, big dividends. Archbishop, you notice that the trust fund of the church, which has lots of coal and oil shares, is booming. You've been able to pay off the debt from all the awards over those paedophile priests. <laughs> <laughs> You've been able to pay off. Uh, would you talk to the trustees? You notice that they don't invest in pornography or uh, prostitution or even in gambling. They're not supposed to invest in firms that are contrary to Catholic values. Is it time that the church sold its oil and gas shares? In fact, back in the, uh, in the 20 teens, Pope Francis already, already told the church to, to get out of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, uh, most, of, it, most of the Australian church has yes. been divesting itself for a generation now, mm. and it's all gone. If Australia is going to do, uh, give licences to coal uh, producers so as to stop Germans from freezing to death, we should be extracting uh, a very large tax from that that we can put into developing uh, emission-free forms of, of, of energy generation. So it could be that Professor Johnson's going to find us a way of using the coal better or using yes. something else instead. Well, let us hope so. In the meantime, Dr Sharma, you have a wealthy patient, a lot of said, as many of your patients do, Doctor, you've saved my life. Unfortunately, you hadn't, but they left to you in their will <laughs> a very large <laughs> packet of oil and coal shares. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to accept that legacy? Specifically for these dilemmas, uh, doctors are not allowed to accept gifts uh, from, from patients. Uh, and even though that patient sounds like they, uh, they may not have any need, any need for that, may not even be a transactional relationship, but these are just the kind of quandaries we avoid by uh, distancing ourselves and keeping that relation to the so transactional you wouldn't minimum. accept. You could give the money to Greenpeace, uh, Although they wouldn't accept it, would they? It was from oil and gas shares. Absolutely not. No. Chris Barry, 
way back in 2022, you accused climate scientists of being unprepared to fess up to the dangers. But now they are. In fact, more and more are saying that 2022 was the last opportunity. And now it's too late. We missed the boat. We have no alternative but to confront. We can't wind back climate change. We've got to live with it. That's true. And the global uh, warming temperature has now risen to two degrees Celsius. Yep. It happened a lot more quickly than we expected. Yeah. We've seen the number of heat waves, ocean warming, all of those indicators now Mm. reach their tipping points. And so um, from where I sit, we're starting to talk about the existential threat of climate change to human beings on the planet because we're entering a period when we will not be able to control the heating of the planet and that is going to produce catastrophic effects that will influence everyone. And it raises the very serious question that whether or not the current international system we've been talking about here tonight is fit for purpose when we look to our future. Well, it's failed, hasn't it? And we can no longer fight climate change. We've got to live with it, which means driving electronic cars or better still taking public transport, not flying, not eating meat, particularly New Zealand lamb with all the methane, encouraging kids to go out and glue themselves to coal trucks or surround oil refineries. Gosh, in order to get a reasonable climate, it could mean moving to Melbourne. (laughs) Where there is no water. Well, but there is, you see, the house prices in St Kilda and Brighton are going up because not only can you get a decent climate down there, it's the last place in Australia, but you're out of the range of Chinese ICBMs. (laughs) I mean, Wendy Harmer, when you were born in Victoria, people only came to Melbourne because it was, they thought, the last place on earth if there was a nuclear war in the upper hemisphere, we'd be like on the beach. Melbourne would be the last place for the nuclear cloud to hit. Mm, That's right. I am half Tasmanian by birth, so (laughs) I'll be going further south, Geoffrey, (laughs) just so you know. Yeah, all right. Well, that's the future that faces us. What the future holds for amnesia, Mr. Reagan Vanu, you've got some good news. Those nodules that Professor Johnston discovered in the deep ocean, but within your 200-mile radius, are enormously valuable. You get an offer from Santos and from Glencore They want an exploration license to go and explore more deeply with, as everyone knows, the chance in the future to dredge up from the deep sea. The problem in the past is they have not offered us very good royalties at all. In fact, it's been negligible, which is why none of the other countries have ever accepted these companies to 
dredge in their waters. They're offering enormous sums, 500 million, just for an exploration license. There's no data to show that disturbance of the deep sea bed will do any ecological damage. That's right, we know nothing. And so the problem is the only people who can go down there are these companies. Yeah. Who else is going to be able to go down there and find out what's down there? Mm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, do we require them a license and get them to do research not only in the minerals, but also all the biological diversity? Yeah. Because this is the only opportunity we have. There are Greenland sharks, aren't there? Live 400 years down in the deep. In, a, in, not in that spot, but yes. 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 The great thing for these Australian firms, which makes it a win-win situation and why they offer you so much money, is that they get a tax deduction from the Australian government for all the money they pay for exploring for more coal and gas. Yes, we'd probably get some very good contract lawyers and draw Mm -hmm. up a contract, which requires them to do all that exploration, all the knowledge we need to know, biological diversity, minerals, any methane seeps they might accidentally hit, Mm -hmm. uh, the topography and draw up a contract that says they can do the exploration. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether we grant any license to mine or pick up the nodules is Mm. a totally separate matter. Of course. So it will be a win-win, yes? Well, this is a success in the sense that these companies have branched out. They Mm. are looking at the types of rare earths that actually help the transition. They uh, are presenting now solutions to those who don't want to see them uh, pursuing coal or gas uh, or nuclear energy to, in fact, the type of rare earths that we need if we're going to have batteries and other solutions to sit alongside. They're so keen that they will, of course, these rare earth minerals are used in wind farm batteries. So they say, we will build you a wind farm. You won't have any blackouts anymore. We'll dig from the deep sea... There's no evidence it will disturb the fish. It might, but uh, we'll take the risk. We don't hold much confidence given what we see with mining companies on land. Mm. And so we have to do a lot of uh, precautionary work first. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Imelda? I wouldn't do it at all. Really? We're already in a crisis. Mm-hmm. So why would you continue? You'd look at alternatives such as wind farm. Well, that's what a lot of your school kids think. You're at the school, you're a teacher at the school at St. Jude's, and a lot of the teenagers want to go on a demonstration. They've been listening to Greta Thunberg on the internet. They want to protest against a government that is going with Santos to deep sea mining. They want to protest against the Australian government, which is giving all these coal companies more licences. Would you support them? I definitely would support young people who are standing up for the rights of those who, are, who aren't able to do so. Mm-hmm. And I also appreciate their willingness to protest against these companies. Mm-hmm. There's power in people and there's a lot of power with the young people that we have here now. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of you have seen how the climate strikes, the students, like the amazing outcome of all of that, what, what that's done for the climate movement. 
And in saying so, I also acknowledge that a lot of the passion that's um, driving the force behind their decisions to protest is also for younger children, young people in Pacific Islanders who are mostly going to be affected by mm. this. So am I going to support them? Am I going to provide them with the information to be able to better equip them so that when they're protesting, they're safe? I absolutely will, because they're not only doing it for themselves, they're doing it for other people the in the Pacific. The problem is they won't be safe because the every protest requires a license. And the chief of police, Colonel Sam Booker, has denied them a license, threatens to arrest them. They've asked you, Thomas Mayor, they hear you're in town. Would you be prepared to address them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What would you say? I would say if they think something's right, if it's about their future, and you know, um, then they should stand up for their rights and fight back. Mm -hmm. The problem is they have no, the police, have no crowd control weapons. All they have from the Chinese government are the latest arms, the latest rifles and automatics. What uh, they do need, and what the Australian government is thinking of supplying them with, is crowd control weapons. Rubber bullets, water cannon, you know the kind. Would the mercantile union be prepared to load those as a gift of aid from Australia? Uh, no, not in that situation. We'll do everything to stop that, to, um, you know, to help the people. But yeah. if you were a protester, Sina, what, uh, wouldn't you rather be gassed than shot? Neither. Um, but also, we're in, a, we're in an age where to get your messages across to these companies, you don't necessarily have to do it through protesting only. There are many creative ways to confront these bad companies, and a lot of that has happened already in the past. Um, in the Pacific, where I'm from, we're not confrontational. What we'll do is we'll invite you to a Talanoa dialogue, and I think most of you know what that is. It's an open dialogue where a lot of decisions are being made through conversations like this. So while we want to protest, acknowledging that that's not the only way to do it, and especially not putting other people, putting our young people in the face of harm. We're listening to Geoffrey Robertson's hypothetical All at Sea here on Radio National Summer. So protests have erupted. There are fears of a coup and tragedy ahead. What will Australia do if the amnesian prime minister seeks refuge in the embassy? And can the ship's doctor become a hero by administering a lethal pill? Here's Geoffrey Robertson. The protest goes ahead. The police, having no crowd control weapons, panic. There are shots fired. Two students die under the hail of bullets. There is rioting, looting, throughout the island. Colonel Sambuca is inclined to impose martial law. Jeff Raby, you get up the next morning at the High Commission, turn on the radio, hear military music, peals to keep calm. What's happening? 
Mm. Well, it's a coup, is it? Then uh, we... Well, Sam Booker comes on the radio saying a few minutes later that a number of MPs are under arrest, that the Prime Minister will be shortly arrested and charged with treason, and that for the moment the army is in control. It's martial law. Well, to the extent we know the facts on the ground, uh, then uh, we should be uh, considering a range of measures uh, that would uh, uh, put pressure on Sambuca to go back to the previous situation of democratic uh, conditions. And so there needs to be a response, a very strong response, and it needs to be backed up by action. But action, what sort of action, Rex Patrick? There's no point in sending... Collins-class submarines, they'd take a month to get there. We did pass one on the cruise ship uh, on on the way. (laughs) And, and of course... I thought that was Chinese. And, of course, course they they can carry special forces and they can assist um, Jeff in, in his reporting back to Canberra. But what, Chris Barry, can we do? These people have Chinese arms, they control the airport. There'd be a lot of Australian bloodshed if we intervened. Classically, we've put those kinds of countries into the freezer. We've made it difficult for them to maintain their position in the Pacific, and we waited them out until they come back. Regrettably, I think the conditions in the Pacific today are changing, and I think we all understand that decisions in the Pacific are now made in the specific islands. They're not made in Canberra, they're not made in London or in Washington. They're being made no. in the islands. And that makes it very, very difficult now mm. to uh, overturn what has happened. And the only, uh, in our view, in the Australian view, the only people who can solve that problem are the people in the islands themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, Senator Birmingham, that uh, doesn't sound good for Australian intervention. It's not good, uh, but it is uh, an increasing reality that we face. Uh, I'm talking to the High Commissioner clearly about what avenues there are for personal contact. I understand that uh, that as Admiral Barry was doing his military training, there were others he served with who uh, who also served alongside Colonel Sam Booker, who did a stint in Australia at one stage, and he will did. want he to dispatch at, them. He went to Duntroon, so he's quite brutal. And you see... Jeff Raby, that uh, you've got a printout of uh, what ASIO thinks about him. He's a Seventh-day Adventist, he suffers from delusions of grandeur. He's quite well, he's quite healthy, except he does go down with very bad headaches, migraines from time to time, in which he's irrational and dangerous. But uh, he's not pro-Chinese. He's probably out for himself. He has a secret apartment he's bought in Surface Paradise. So he'll probably rule corruptly for a couple of years and then hand back to the Democrats and go to his apartment. So he's not perhaps the most dangerous person worth shedding Australian blood. No, and look, as a highly competent, uh, effective High Commissioner, I would know him personally, and I'd be a regular visitor to his house. So uh, I would expect to call a few favours from him. Yes. And we could have a conversation about some of these matters, including well, the Gold Coast. your visitor today 
is none other than the Prime Minister himself. He's escaped over a back fence and he wonders whether he can have refuge at the Australian High Commission. I would have to consult Canberra. Well, you don't have very long. You're going to keep him on the steps for <laughs> where everyone can see him. Don't worry, it's happened before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there are processes and there are telephones. So, look, uh, in that situation, I think uh, you would take... Uh, you take him in, in, hide him somewhere to have a... Uh, well, in we, the attic we, or wherever. We, we, we did that when I was in the embassy after Tiananmen Square in yeah. Beijing. We no. had uh, dissidents in the embassy uh, be protected for five months until mm. we negotiated safe passage. So there's precedent for it. It's, sure. it's not and unusual. He injured his leg getting over the fence, but you give a call to Dr Sharma, so he comes to the embassy and looks after him. And your next visitor is the colonel himself. He says, Mr Jeff, I come in peace but I believe that you probably have Reagan Vanu in your embassy, in which case we will have to ransack it until we find him. We have a warrant for his arrest signed by the local judge, my brother, and it is, seems to be valid, it's for treason an old colonial law that they didn't get round to abolishing. It has a mandatory death sentence. So what's your answer? The to... Vienna Convention. We, we, Mr. Ramey, we, we, uh, this is uh, amnesia. It's not Vienna. Vienna. <laughs> and you're not coming in. It's not Vienna. I'm going to give you a chance. I'll give you four hours for the Prime Minister to say his prayers. And then I will come in with my troops and extract him, as well as looting your embassy. Your law, your colonial law, does not apply now. This is martial law, and we want Reagan value. Yeah, but Amnesia is a signatory to the uh, Vienna Convention. Yes, of course. And they have their own international obligations. I want your Prime Minister if he's there, and I suspect that he is. I'll be back in four hours. I suppose, Wendy Harmer, you are called by ABC News. They say with all Dutton's cuts on the ABC finances, we don't have a journalist in amnesia, but you've been a reporter before. Will you be our stringer? Well, I'm about to get my 37th booster shot of COVID. Um, I, I think, you know, once I've organised mm. that, I should be good to go. You should be good to go. What they really want you to find mm. is where the Prime Minister is. That's what the world wants to know. Is he safe? Mm. I'm going to need a cameraman, camera person. Yes, you've got one. Thank you. Um, is the Archbishop available? To come? No doubt. He's uh, giving mass at the moment, yeah. but you've got to find the Prime Minister. Find the Prime Minister. Mm. Well, I am going to be... Who am I going... I'm going to ask for a bit of local knowledge. Imelda. <laughs> yes, can you repeat the question? Where is... <laughs> where is the Prime Minister? 
I'm not telling you. <laughs> it's none of your business. <laughs> well, um, you probably saved his life. Absolutely. Now, of course, you know Jeff Raby. He, you met him on the boat. Maybe he'd be a source of information. Well, Bring he absolutely would. And Jeff, um, above board here, I'm a journalist with the ABC. Um, um, I'm going to be recording our conversation. Obviously, where is the where is the prime minister? Uh, well, the prime minister is in safe hands. Not good enough, I'm afraid. Safe hands. Well, that's uh, I need all you're getting. <laughs> that's all you're getting. The prime minister's in safe hands. Safe hands. We know his whereabouts. Uh, we can vouch for his whereabouts. Would you whereabouts. like to share that with the Australian people? Well, I haven't consulted Canberra. You haven't consulted Canberra. You like a, Wendy, you're talking to a High Commissioner. Get, get it right. So, um, who would you recommend that I speak to in Canberra? Oh, the Minister. The Minister. Sitting next to you. Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to get to that. So, Senator Birmingham, um, what, how can you enlighten us here in this uh, situation? Uh, well, there are a range of diplomatic cliches I could use to enlighten you, uh, you Wendy. This is a very sensitive issue in a very difficult time, and we are making the strongest possible representations. <laughs> very good, Minister. So uh, I'll put that down as a no comment. <laughs> Well, you get on to Ben Gunn, who's an artist at the tattoo parlour, and he tells you that he doesn't know, but a friend of his has a friend who saw the Prime Minister entering the Australian High Commission this morning. Is that a good enough source? Maybe you should go back to the High Commissioner and see... Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to go to the, uh, yes, to the tattoo artist and get more um, information there. I'll probably get this thing I've got my ass covered up as well, actually. <laughs> Hasn't been going that well for me. But, um, yes, I will obviously be going to him to get, you know, more information to verify what he saw and then go back to the High Commissioner and uh, try and, um, you know, ask you again for some verification. Yes. And, I've and... got a witness here. You have a witness, but that was in the morning. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Many things happen in the course of a day, including a coup. And I don't find him a reliable source, by the way. Well, um... You're not getting very far. Hmm, I'm not getting very far. Meanwhile, here. the time is ticking away. Sambuca's aide-de-camp comes two hours later and said... We notice that you've got a doctor in the embassy. The colonel is coming down with one of his terrible headaches. We were wondering whether, in fact, we were insisting that the doctor come and treat him. Well, you've got no choice. He's got troops outside. But you do have your very large pill bag. You have a pill that's been developed by Pfizer recently <laughs> that would cure his migraine. It's the pill that you need to give him for his medical condition. You have the cyanide pill that looks surprisingly similar. <laughs> Although you've color-coded it, you could give him that 
and he'd be dead within a half an hour. The coup would end. They've got no other charismatic leader. And you'd be a hero. You will have saved democracy, saved the life of the prime minister if they don't kill you as you leave. I don't think my medical indemnity covers all that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You do have a third pill. It's a knockout pill. It would knock him out for 24 hours, in which time it wouldn't cure his migraine, but in which time you might be able to get away and escape to the boat. You don't have long. <laughs> <laughs> Armed men are outside waiting to take you. I, mean, I, I would ask off. the High Commissioner to, to protect me and uh, to not let me go. What, you'd be um, a coward? You'd do nothing? <laughs> that's not an option. Uh, the troops know you're there. They'll come in and escort you. We won't let them in. Thanks. Are you in what army? <laughs> 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 He's told you. He's seen the doctor... They'll drag the doctor out. They're not going to keep to the Vienna Convention. Why should they? They're, they're not diplomats. They're soldiers with up-to-date Chinese Armalite rifles. Which pill do you give him? I, I'd give him the pill that is medically indicated the that would help his The market. knockout pill. Yeah, I think... You give him the knockout pill and you run for your life back to the boat, and as you turn round, you see a very big Chinese battleship that is docking. Troops come out, they take the somnolent body of Colonel Sambuco, and they disarm his men, and they reinstate the Prime Minister as Gung Ho from Beijing boasts that the People's Liberation Army have restored democracy in amnesia. Time to leave this island, Captain Barry. We've got one trip to Tuvalu and then home to Sydney. Tuvalu looks like a drowned Atlantis-type city. You can see the tops of the roofs of the capital, and it was only ever 15 feet height, this country, and so you can see a few palm trees. You sail around, invite the archbishop to give the last rites, and then throw a wreath in the water before you depart. What do you write on your wreath, Wendy Harmer? <sighs> so long and thanks for all the fish. Mm -hmm. and your wreath, Abbas Nazari? Welcome to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> your wreath, Thomas Mayer? One down, 13 to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Rex Patrick? We're very sorry. We should have helped, realised a lot earlier and helped a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. And Sheena? I wouldn't even want to hold that piece of reef. You You'd be upset at the loss of your family home, your father's home. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was too late. And Captain Barry, you head 
for Sydney. Although the passengers take up a petition, they want to go to Melbourne. <laughs> a better, better climate out of the range of the Chinese missiles. And what about the Tuvaluans? No country will take the full 11,000 of them, and they want to stay together. Well, the liquidator of Tuvalu makes an interesting discovery. Back in 1995, the International Internet Corporation for Assigned Names assigned Tuvalu a name that is incredibly valuable. Permanent domain name .tv. He puts it up for auction. There's massive bidding from Netflix, from Amazon, from Disney. And it's finally bought for $300 million. .tv. And the Tuvaluans are the richest refugees in the world. And with this money, they buy an island. Hayman Island. <laughs> <laughs> And they raise their flag with the eel and the flounder. And they live happily ever after, or at least until the Whitsundays themselves are topped by the heated ocean. Thank you all very much. I'm Cassie McCullough and I hope you've enjoyed our special presentation for Radio National Summer, Geoffrey Robertson's hypothetical All at Sea. This unscripted event was devised and performed by Geoffrey Robertson, AOKC, with the assistance of the production team at Lateral Events, Simon Baggs, Leslie Holden, Carolyn Didier and Matt Baranow. Thanks to Geoffrey Robertson and Lateral Events for letting us broadcast this hypothetical. You can find bios on the panellists involved and full credits at abc.net.au slash summer. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.